Well, uh, we continue in our presentations this morning, and we certainly uh, are looking forward to the next presentation by Paul Washer. Paul Washer is a good friend of TMAI, just recently returned from uh, our training center in Samara, Samara Center for Biblical Training, where he served our men very well. I believe that was his second occasion to speak to them. Many of you know about Paul's preaching ministry. Uh, we're grateful for his influence and stance on these convictions that we share. But one of the things that so endears me to Paul and uh, increases my, my respect for him is, is we share a common calling with regard to the missions of our organizations. He was the founder of Heart Cry Missionary Society, which has as its primary and singular aim to support, to come alongside national pastors. This is born out of his own passion of serving in Peru for many years and realizing that the future of the church uh, in any cultural context is the future future of those church leaders. And Heart Cry Missionary Society uh, works in multiple regions around the world to equip and to support those pastors. And we're so grateful that he agreed to join us today. So please welcome Paul Washer as he comes. Let's open up our Bibles to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. Now before I read this text, I want you to know that my primary purpose here today is to speak to you who do believe God's word and to admonish and encourage you who do stand upon the inerrancy of God's word. Men, these are dangerous times. One of the most dangerous things that can happen to us is this, that you get pulled away from the study of scripture and prayer. And in doing so, you are no longer wearing the mantle of a man of God, but just a busy, busy little boy. It is not enough to correct the world with regard to inerrancy. You and I must live it out. If you have been called of God, your primary obligation is to be alone with him. Although you must be a man among men, you must primarily be a man alone with God. You are alone with him in his word. And you are alone with him in prayer. So that when you do come forth from your study... The word of God comes out of your mouth in the power of the Holy Spirit, not mere intellectualism, not eloquence or cleverness, but the power of the Holy Spirit. And he is most promised to manifest himself as the word of God is proclaimed by God's men. So it's to you. I'm not here to rebuke, reprove, or admonish those who've not even come to the point of believing this is the word of God, but to deal with you. That if you call yourself a man of God, if you hold to these great truths, that the scriptures are the true revelation of God, then how dare you neglect them? How dare you be busy in other things? How dare you? Let's look at, at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 
All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Let's pray. Our great God and Savior. Lord, we look to you. The eye of every man and woman in this room looks to you now. We ask you, Lord, to work among us. To change us. To see, Lord, more of the great importance of your word and more of the great task that has been given to us to proclaim it, to live it. Lord, I am nothing before you. Have nothing to give these men. No intellect, no force of will. So help, Lord. Help. Look with mercy upon me, upon these people. Lord, that we might gain something from this short time. That there might be some eternal benefit, Lord. I, I gather my strength. I grab hold of thee, O oh God. And I plead, do something for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I believe it is appropriate to refer to 2 Timothy as something of Paul's last will and testament. And I believe that the text that I have just read is the heart of that last will and testament. But for, in order for us to understand it more completely, we need to take a brief look at the context. And we're going to see that the times surrounding this charge, surrounding this commission, are not different from our own times. Let's begin. Let's look in chapter 3, verse 1. What do we see? The charge is given in the midst of difficult times. King James has it as perilous times. The word can even be translated dangerous or severe times. So Paul is giving this charge in a perilous day. Look in verses 2 through 5. Paul tells us that men will be lovers of themselves. They will be lovers of pleasure. And not only that, they will be haters of God and haters of all that is good. Now go on to verses 6 through 9. From this group, false Prophets and teachers will arise, men of depraved minds and who are not only neutral or uncaring about the truth, but they are entirely opposed to it. Then look in chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. These false prophets and false teachers will find a large, large audience because Paul speaks of a time when men will no longer be able to endure sound doctrine, but they will accumulate for themselves teachers according to their own fleshly desires. And then look at 4.13. Men and evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, both deceiving 
and being deceived. And finally, in verse 12 of chapter 4, we understand that the times will become so despicable that all those who seek to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. These are the times in which these charges are given. And they are not different from our own times. We are living on the edge of a knife. These are perilous times. And it's time for the man of God to throw away his coat of a businessman and an active achiever and put on his cloak as a man of God and preach the word of God. Now, let's look at something very important here. In these difficult times, Paul not only tells Timothy that he must endure, but Paul tells Timothy that he must overcome. Must not simply maintain, but he must advance the kingdom. Again, let's look at the context. Look in chapter 3, verse 14. In the midst of all this, he says, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. You have not learned these things seated at the feet of the apostle, but you have learned these things from the very word of God written and handed down to us by his providence. Then look on the other side in chapter 4, verse 5. But you, be sober. Sometimes people ask me, why are you always so serious? These are serious times. These are not trifling times. These are not playful times. Not a time for a joker. Joy, yes, but solemnity. These are serious times. He says in verse 5, but you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Never forget this, men. Proclamation is not just simply you expositing the scriptures safely behind your pulpit. Every once in a while, someone needs to go out where the dead are and preach. Do the work of an evangelist, he says. Fulfill your ministry. Now, we need to ask ourselves a question. How can we endure in the midst of these types of times? How can we not only endure, but how can we go forward and advance the kingdom? The answer is found in our text. There's only one way. By us tenaciously, tenaciously holding on to the inspiration, the inerrancy, the infallibility. And not only that, because all those mean nothing if we don't get the last word right. The sufficiency of scripture. We must hold on to these things. We must study the scriptures we must obey the scriptures and we must proclaim the scriptures in season and out. Now, men, listen to me. If someone were to follow your life around, if someone were to look at you, to mark you out on a map for 24 hours every day, would they see this as your primary task? Would they see this in your life? That above all things, you give yourself to the study of God's word. Above all things, to practicing it, to being conformed by it, and to proclaiming it. Is this what they would see from you? You see, you're in a great and dangerous place right now. Because you hear marvelous things, and you want to nod to them all. But the question is, is it a reality in our lives? 
That's what matters. Is it truly a reality in our lives? Now let's go to our text. He says, all scripture in verse 16 is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now two great truths come forth from just this text. The first is that the scriptures are inspired. They are theonustos. They are God-breathed. With so many people giving opinions and testimonies with regard to the word of God, I would like to encourage all of so-called Christendom to maybe pay attention to the opinion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who said every word, every word proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then to Second Peter chapter 1, where we are told, and that word has come down to us through men who have been moved upon, who have been carried by the Spirit of God. And because of that, what can we say about the Scriptures? They are inerrant. They are without error. They are infallible. They are incapable of error. Now let's look at ourselves. You and I and the world around us are prone to error. And we are capable of every type and kind of error. Every one of them we're capable of. Now here's the great question for the man of God or anyone who would be in the ministry. How can we be confident that our behavior, our thoughts, our words, our ministries, our ministry activity, how can we be confident that it's pleasing to God? How can we have any confidence whatsoever that when we stand before him on the day of judgment... It will not be all burned to pieces. How can we have confidence that what we do is admired by God and pleasing to God? There's only one way. If it conforms to the inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient word of God. It's the only, only standard. Now, I want us to look at the second great truth from our text. The second great truth is this, that all scriptures are profitable. The word may also be translated useful, beneficial, even advantageous. Because the Bible, because the written word of God is inspired by God, it is the most useful, most beneficial, and most necessary instrument for the building up of the church. Nothing, nothing else compares. One of the things that most astounds me, primarily about American strategy, missionary strategy, church planting strategy, is how far removed it is from the scriptures. It's as though we've looked at the scriptures and found them wanting, and so we turn to our own cleverness to figure out how to best move the things of God on this planet. It's absolutely absurd. Now, I want to say this. Knowing that the scriptures are inspired, listen to me carefully. To neglect the scriptures. Now men, deflate your chest for all of us have done this. No man gives the scriptures the due that pertains to them. To neglect the scriptures in any way 
or to set anything beside the scriptures as their equal is to commit high treason against the government of God. Do you understand me? This is not a small thing. This is everything. Do you want to know why it's everything? Because it's about the scriptures. Do you know why the scriptures are so important? Because they're about Christ. And if you knock down one domino, the rest of them fall. It's high treason against God to neglect the scriptures, to set anything beside the scriptures as their equal. And not only is it high treason, but when you do that, you destroy the only compass spiritual, moral, truth, compass that is capable of leading the church through the wilderness and out of the wilderness. That's how serious our task truly is. Now, let's go on. We must ask ourselves. Paul says that the scriptures are useful. Now the question, how are they useful? Well, let's take a look. It says, first of all, they're useful for teaching our instruction. The scriptures are the source of all Christian doctrine, and they are the rule of every ethic. Now, let's look at that in light of the problem that we have today. There is a famine of the word of God in the land, is there none? Every land gathered here today, every nation, every continent would say, the great need of the hour, there is the famine of the word of God in the land. The unbelieving world, they languish in ignorance and moral decay. And in the church, what do we see? God's people are being destroyed for a lack of knowledge. For where there is no vision, the people perish. Which properly translated is where there is no revelation of God's will. The people run unrestrained. Now what is the answer to this problem? Teaching. The exposition of God's holy word. By whom? By men who have set their hearts. They have set their hearts to study the law of the Lord. To practice the law of the Lord. And to proclaim, to teach the law of the Lord. All its statutes, all its ordinances, its full counsel to the people of God and to the people beyond. That is our task. What is the need of the hour? Men who believe that when they hold this book in their hands, they have the inerrant revealed word of God. And not only that, but men who believe there is no other cure. I am so tired of men talking about inerrancy and infallibility. Yet when you see their ministries, it's obvious that they do not believe that the scriptures are sufficient. Because they run to every clever strategy to make their church grow or to make their ministry prosper or to reach the nations. Be gone with all these silly things. I mean, study the word of God. Read the word of God. Preach the word of God. Meditate upon the word of God. It's not just something we have. It's not just the most important thing we have. It's all we have. Outside of that, there's nothing. And outside of conformity of your life to it, there's nothing but foolishness. Is the word of God. Now, also it says that this word of God is for reproof. That the scriptures are not only the source of truth, but they are the great instrument in the church for exposing error 
and refuting it. Now, what is the problem? Well, let's look at it. The men of this unbelieving world professing themselves to be wise, they have become fools with regard to error. And in the church, what do we see? It seems that in Christendom today, there is no king. There is no sure word. And everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Now, what is the solution? To recognize that the canon, the scriptures, are the canon, the standard, and the rule against which every thought, word, and deed must be compared. Anyone who talks to me long enough knows that I have a deep, deep love for the Puritans. It's not that I agree with everything the Puritans ever said, and I'm sure they don't agree with me, and I'm sure that they don't really care. (laughs) But the one thing I so appreciate about the Puritans is this. They attempted to conform every aspect of thought and practice to the Word of God. Here's something that you need to know. If you haven't discovered this already about men, men are wrong. Men do not think they are wrong. And men do not want to be told that they are wrong. And the only thing powerful enough to turn men back to God is the Word of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit. There is nothing else. All your arguing with men will amount to nothing. It is vanity. But to take the word of God and to press it upon their conscience, now that promises a mighty return. The wise minister will not just be informative. And that's one of the great problems I have with a lot of expository preaching today. First of all, many times it's not Christ-centered. Many times it's not spirit-empowered. And many times it is only informative. The world does not need a New Testament survey class. The, word, the, the world needs the word of God. Preach it to them. Preach to them. They need to be taught, but not just taught. We need to take the word of God and demand change. Demand transformation. It is also for reproving the world, that the world through the reproof might be changed. And so the wise minister of the gospel, what will he do? He will act almost like a prosecuting attorney, building his case with the scriptures and presenting the evidence with the purpose of refuting error, of exposing error, and of making men turn from their error. So scripture is for teaching and scripture is for reproof. Now, there's another thing about Scripture. It is for correction. The word means here to set up right or to set straight again. Thayer refers to it as a restoration to a right state. Mounts says this. It is to improve or to bring about reformation. Dear brothers, it seems to me that whenever there is a problem... We are like men running to men, like broken cisterns running to broken cisterns. 
The only way anything in this world is going to be corrected is through conformity by the Spirit to the living Word of God. That is the only way. It is not enough to teach. It is not enough just to show men they are wrong. But we must also correct them. And the way that we do it is not by giving them our opinions. Not by giving them our ideas. Not by sharing just our experiences. The way that it is done is through the word of God. Now what is the problem? The world and the church today, if there was ever a time when we need... Reformation and revival, it is today. And you say, well, Brother Paul, there were darker times. No, you need to understand some things. There are things moving in this world that are extremely dangerous. Although the church is considered by her enemies to be insignificant, the enemies are most preoccupied with the church. They hate her. They do not just want her silent. They want her gone. They want her gone. And the only way that's going to be changed is through the proclamation of the word of God, bringing reformation and bringing revival. Now, so many people have asked me, what's the answer to reformation? How can reformation come? Well, first of all, brothers, let me ask you a question. How many of you are praying for reformation? How many of you are praying for revival? Or how many of you have become passive because because of your doctrine of the sovereignty of God? How How many of you can actually believe God to do something great? Is there anywhere in the scriptures where it says in this century all comes to an end in darkness? Is there anywhere in scripture where it says there cannot be a mighty move of God? There can be. But as in almighty moves of God, we are to ask for it. And we are to align our lives with the will of God so that we might be instruments to bring it about. What can bring about reformation and revival? Well, let me ask you a question. What was the foundation of the last reformation? The great reformation. And what has been the foundation of every great awakening and of every true revival in the history of the church? I'll tell you what it's. What it is. It is the rediscovery of the Word of God. The rediscovery of the Word of God. Whenever the Word is rediscovered by God's people, there is reformation and revival. So, what do we need? The rediscovery of God's word. Now, I'm not just talking about people out there, I'm talking about me and I'm talking about you. Brothers, let me ask you a question. Do you need to rediscover God's word? How many minutes a day are you feeding your soul on the word of God? Do you need to rediscover the word of God? And then reformation came from not only rediscovery, but the clear proclamation of the word of God. Brothers, how many here need to retune their lives and give more time to clearly setting forth the word of God before God's people. 
And then in a Reformation, it's not simply the rediscovery of Scripture, and it's not simply the clear proclamation, but what is it? It is the alignment of our lives to its ancient and immutable truths. How much time do you take doing that? Think. Ask yourself that question now. How much of your daily activity is about realigning your life in conformity to the ancient and immutable truths of God's word? Oh, brothers, don't look for a thief outside the door. Look for one in the house. Don't look for problems with those outside. But let's look at our own lives. If there's going to be reformation and revival, it must start with the missionary. It must start with the preacher, with the pastor, with the evangelist, with the people of God. Now, I want to share something. When we talk about correction, we talk about setting things right. It seems like every two or three months, there's a completely new idea on how to do that. But brothers, listen to me. Every one of those, when they come through your mailbox or you see them on the internet, delete, delete, delete. We are not called to lead men or the church down some novel road of recovery. We are called to direct men and the church to the ancient road where the good path is. We are to teach them to walk in it so that they might find rest for their souls. And the only place where that path is truly marked out is in the written word of God. Now let's go on. Also for training in righteousness. The word denotes training, nurturing, even discipline, something that not only our church needs, but something that we as men of God need. Training and nurturing and discipline. Some Greek scholars refer to it this way. It is giving instruction, not for instruction's sake, but giving instruction with the intent of forming proper habits of thought and behavior. We are called to train men What are we to train them in? Righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness is conformity to the nature and will of God. Now let me ask you a question. Where is the nature? Where is the will of God revealed in the Holy Scriptures? Now let's go on. What is the problem today? The unbelieving world is like Nineveh. It does not know its right hand from its left. The world today is like the people in Jeremiah's time. They were shrewd to do evil, but to do good, they did not know. And then let's look at the church. When we look at what's called Christendom today, what do we see? Spiritual infants, immature children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Do you see that? It's what the scriptures say. They are not, 
Let's draw from Hebrews now. They are not accustomed to the word of righteousness. They are partakers of milk if they are partakers of anything at all. And because of this, they have not been trained to discern good or evil. Now, what is the solution to this problem? The solution is this. You and I, as men of God, are to proclaim God's righteous standard as it is revealed in the scriptures. We are to proclaim God's righteous standard to the unbelieving world. And then we are to to direct their afflicted hearts back to Christ, our righteousness. And what are we to do in the church? Missionary, pastor, listen to me. If the people in our churches are unaccustomed to the word of righteousness, as the writer of Hebrews says, then it's our fault. It's our fault. Listen to me. You're not an errand boy. You're not a mover and a shaker. You're not a clever strategist. You don't seek to move men. You seek to move heaven on behalf of men. You are a man of prayer. You are a man of the word. You wear a cloak, not a business suit. Hear me. And therefore, we ought to be able to come forth and train the people in a word of righteousness. How? Through the frequent preaching of it. Through the frequent preaching of it. Now, I want to I say something here and I think it's very, very important. And please understand me. I am, I'm in favor, I'm not against personal one-on-one discipleship of members discipling members. I'm not against that. But I want you to know that's not the primary means of discipling people in the church according to the word of God. It's just not. As a matter of fact, I believe that since the 70s, the growth in the idea of personal one-on-one discipleship is the direct result for the ever-weakening pulpit. That the typical sermon in the typical church is so weak that the typical Christian must go elsewhere to find discipleship, to find training. Men, listen to me. It's all about the preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's about death to self. It's about you. It's about you cutting yourself off from much conversation and much activity and giving yourself to God alone with Him. Something I always tell the young men that I'm training, that when I first was called into the ministry, I went to my pastor who was a very godly man, and when I told him that I was, uh, God had called me, his question to me was this, boy, can you be alone? And I thought that what he was saying to me was if I preached the word, no one would like me. Which, if that was true, is a prophecy that's been fulfilled. (laughs) But that's not what he meant. What he meant was, when all the other college boys are going on their ski retreats for Jesus, and everyone else 
is running around doing all sorts of activities. Can you be alone with God? Can you tie yourself down to the horns of the altar? Can you live with him? So that on that day when you preach, you preach as one who can say, the God before whom I stand has sent me. Never forget, men, we do not have a mystical task, but we do have a spiritual one. We do. Now, let's go on. I'm afraid I'm going to, I've got seven minutes, so we're going to have to hurry. We're going to put this in overdrive. Look in verse 17. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The man of God. Now, I want to give you three words. There is an inseparable, essential, and unilateral relationship between the man of God and the word of God. Now, you probably understand inseparable and essential. But you may ask yourself, why do I say unilateral? Because this relationship in one sense is just one way. What do I mean? The word of God is the word of God without the man of God. Number one. But the man of God is not the man of God without the word of God. This is something absolutely essential. You are a little boy playing army. In this mighty cosmic war, you're nothing but a little boy playing army. Unless your primary focus is on knowing God through his word and making God known through his word. Now let's go on. What are we to be like? I have to go back to Ezra once again. We are to be men who have set our heart to study the law of the Lord. To practice it. And to teach its statutes and ordinances among the people of God. We are to be diligent, brothers, to present ourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Ours is a magnificent calling and a terrifying calling. Let's go on. It says here, in my notes, and I don't want to forget to say this, that the man of God has been given an impossible task. Yes. There is nothing possible about what you've been called to do. You have been called to teach, reprove, correct, and train in the highest matters of truth and the highest matters of virtue. It is an impossible task unless you do this one thing. You place your confidence in the word of God and you devote your life to both knowing it and making it known. Now, the phrase here that the man of God may be adequate is literally translated that adequate may be the man of God. And I believe that here that the structure is important. It's placing great emphasis on the need we have to be adequate. Yes, we have been called. Yes, God has promised his help. But brothers, there's work to do. There's fields to be plowed in our own hearts and minds. There's seed to be sown in our own hearts and minds. We must be actively involved in our improvement that God might use us more and more and more. 
Don't walk out of this conference today or the greater conference tomorrow and through the week and walking out bring judgment upon yourself because you've nodded your head over and over and over to the infallibility, the inerrancy of Scripture, but you go home and you treat it with the same neglect. Don't do that. I warn you. Don't do that. The word adequate means to be fully qualified, completely proficient, entirely suited for the task. Brothers, eloquence, intellect will not make you adequate for the task. And then it says equipped. And the word means this, to be completed, to be fitted, to be furnished. As a man going to war must be completed and furnished and fitted with his armor. The only thing that can make you fit to fight this battle is the word of God. Your seminary degree and all those church planting strategies and missionary strategies that for the most part are just a substitute for not doing what we've been commanded to do, which is the Ministry of the word of God and prayer. Those things will not make you equipped. What will make you equipped is devotion to God and devotion to his word. Now, the chapter ends with a phrase that says, for every good work. There is nothing that the minister of Christ is called to do for which the word of God is not sufficient. Do you hear me? Everything that we need to do. The scriptures are sufficient. Now, let me say this. We do not need the anthropologist, the sociologist, the psychologist, and we most certainly do not need the leading expert in cultural trends to make up for something that is supposedly lacking in the written word of God. Everything we need is there. Now he goes on. And well let me say this. Men in missions today. Someone asked me one time. Where did all the liberals go when they were run out of the seminaries? Well they went to the mission field. <laughs> I've never seen so much rot in all my life in literature than what's being written about missions today. It's rot. It is rot. And when you hear these clever strategies and ingenious plans and new, new ways of doing things from men who speak no sure word, I want you to listen to this and this is where I must end. Time is gone. I want you to listen to this admonition from God. Through Isaiah. When they say to you. Consult the mediums and the spiritists. Who whisper and mutter. They have no spirituality. And they have no certain word. Should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead. On behalf of the living? Absolutely not. To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word. It is because they have no dawn. Men. I finish admonishing you. Be what you are. Later on in our text, Paul is going to turn the baton off to, over to Timothy. 
He's going to commission him, command him, charge him in the presence of God. Men, do you realize that when Timothy was seated there, reading that letter to the carnal eye, what did they see? They saw a young boy reading a letter from an old prisoner, scribbled on some parchment. But in reality, you know what was going on? Timothy was translated into the very throne room of God, in the presence of God and the Lamb. And he was given a charge, a charge that is more solemn, more weighty, and more demanding than any charge can be laid upon a mortal man. Spurgeon said, if God calls you to be a servant, do not stoop to be a king. And Luther said, if I could today become king or emperor, I would not give up my office as a preacher. Brothers, more is asked of you than any other man on the planet. You are held to a higher standard than any man on the planet. And you will be judged by a severer judgment if you do not faithfully discharge your ministry. And yet, if you faithfully discharge it, if you, like in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, if you lead many to righteousness, then on that final day, you will shine like the stars in the firmament forever and ever. You will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. God bless you. Well, our brother has served us well by calling us back to the centrality of prayer and a stance on God's word. Amen. Thank you, Paul.